Hello there and welcome to part five of this uh, six-part course on pyrotheology. Um, each part that I'm doing is, is building on the previous. So uh, hopefully as you do these different parts, uh, things kind of become clearer. Some of the things that I say now will maybe even kind of like uh, give you another reflection or another way to engage with what we've already looked at. And hopefully by the end of this, uh, it's not that you're going to remember everything has been said, but actually something better, which is um, that you're going to be able to put yourself into the type of thinking that we've been doing. I mean, that's the key for anything. When you're reading a book of philosophy, for example, for a while you're trying to remember things. You're trying to see the world as the author sees it and uh, you might be even looking at details wikipedia finding out when they were born what they were reacting to etc etc but when you immerse yourself in their writing eventually you get to a point where you start to think like them you start to see the world like they do and that means that if someone asks you a question about the philosopher you don't have to uh, think oh what would they say you know and, and look at the page number you kind of can work out what they would say because you've worked out the way that they conceptualize the world and so it's the same with this um, for a while it's kind of like maybe learning a new discourse a new set of words um, a new kind of set of concepts but eventually what happens is like one of those 3d pictures you kind of start to see the image uh, and then you're able to kind of work your way around it. And every part is interconnected with every other part. Uh, and uh, that's no exception with today, as we look at uh, this idea of non-membership. So as you know, we're using this coin to kind of go through kind of six major parts of pyrotheology. And uh, number five is on the, uh, the reverse of the coin. And on the reverse of the coin, it says non-membership non-membership coin and uh, you know this is like a playful thing with people who engage in my work the idea is when you kind of like really get it uh, you become a type of non-member uh, you you're not part of a club or you're part of a club that uh, doesn't want you as part of a club you're part of a group that helps you be an individual and uh, whenever uh, we first came up with the term non-membership coin and icon it was designed, uh, uh, it was a name given to a course. So you would do the course, you would learn a lot about what, what uh, pyrotheology was. And at the end, you would get a non-membership card to prove that you weren't a member of ICON. Just in case anybody ever accused you of being a member, you could show the non-membership card and say you're not, right? Um, but the term then developed and uh, it's kind of become a key idea for me in my work. Uh, it's not one I talk about very much. This is probably the first time that I've done a full R session on it, uh, but it is important. So what do I mean by non-membership? Uh, right, this is going to be in four parts. So I'm going to start by looking at a concept uh, of Lacan's called the non-all. So I'm going to start by looking at that. Then I'm going to look at uh, Paul and this verse where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are made one in Christ. And I'm going to kind of give a parotheological reading of that. Then we're going to connect that with ideology. I'm going to look at uh, parotheology as being a critique of ideology and what ideology is. And then finally, I want to give some examples of what this type of non-membership 
looks like. Okay, so we'll start off with this notion of the non-all. So later on in Lacan's life and work, he isolates, uh, you could say it's like two different types of desire. And he calls the first not all and the second non all. Um, and actually, uh, Todd McGowan, who um, I'm going to reference a couple of times in this talk, he has a very good YouTube channel. And in that YouTube channel, he has two videos that are very useful for today. One is uh, a video on this notion of the not all and the non all. So you could kind of watch that if you wanted to. And then the other one that's even more important for today is uh, a video he did on ideology. But uh, in terms of the not all and the non all, if this intrigues you and you want to know more, uh, I would recommend you watch that video um, and that'll kind of give you another way into it. So these are two different ways of desiring. And you could describe the not all uh, in this way. You could say that um, everybody is under the law and everybody in psychoanalytic terms is under the law of castration, which means that we all lack, right? We all experience a type of death within life. Not only is death uh, there at the end of life, there is a type of nothingness that is within life. And that manifests as anxiety, as guilt, um, as the sense of meaninglessness, right? So these are different ways in which a type of lack manifests within us. So guilt is a sense that we're not living up to your humanity, so we're lacking some humanity. Uh, meaninglessness is a sense that we are lacking meaning. There is something that is missing that is stopping us from, from feeling fulfilled. And uh, you know, anxiety is this sense of freedom, this sense of not knowing what one should do, not having some answer predetermined that you can grasp, experiencing what Kierkegaard calls the dizziness of freedom. So we all experience this law. We are all under it. None of us can escape it. However, we fantasize a not all. We fantasize someone who is excluded from the law, right? Someone who is outside of this castration. Uh, we don't necessarily think about it, but we act as if there is someone on the outside of it. So to take a very basic example, within consumer capitalism, you could say that there are two kind of very powerful figures of the not all those who are excluded from the frustrations and the, uh, uh, the sense of um, loss and the sense of dissatisfaction that we feel. And one of them is the person who gets wealthy and has everything they could want. So uh, Kylie Jenner or something like that. Someone who has the, all of the money, right? They have enough money to have the beautiful homes and the, the planes and go to the parties and all of that. And they can be seen as a type of non-gastrated other, a type of not all, some individual who is outside of the same struggles that we are all in. Now, of course, the truth is some people have much better lives than others. And um, uh, some people have it a lot easier and some people are a lot happier than others, right? But this is about someone who is kind of like complete fool, someone who, is, who has kind of got salvation, right? With secular salvation. And we fantasize how we could get that. So in any uh, system where there is an exception, you have to have a fantasy that kind of like fills in the gap, 
that allows you to imagine that you are them. So fantasy is where you imagine you are that wealthy person, you are the person who has everything, right? Um, and the fantasy has to be sustained. It has to be sustained by a possibility. So we have the lottery, right? Where you can potentially become wealthy. You can, you can win and get out of the system. Or in religion, you say a certain prayer and you can in the next life get everything, right? So there's a fantasy. So there's a not all. There's a fantasy about being a not all and bridging the gap. And there is a, that fantasy is sustained by a possibility. Right? It's a possibility that never gets realized. If you win the lottery, uh, you become very wealthy. But um, as many of us know, supposedly winning the lottery is very devastating to your health. A lot of people commit suicide. I had an example of this, by the way. I was very poor, lived in Northern Ireland, uh, lived in a working class estate uh, on unemployment benefit. And then I got an opportunity to come to America. Um, a family wanted to be my patron and uh, they supported me for three years. Eventually I did, did it. I moved to a wealthy place in America for a few years. Um, that was, they became very, very close friends of mine. And um, they, like, you know, they basically got me to the place where I'm able to do this at a wider, in a wider way. But I experienced um, a very big shock from living in one of the poorest places in the Western world to one of the wealthiest places in the Western world. And you might think that that would be a kind of very positive experience. I, I, was, I had a home that was lent to me where you could literally put my entire house that I was living in in Belfast into the living room of the, of the home that I was living in. And it was beautiful and uh, the showers were amazing. Two-headed showers, fantastic. And the, the temperature was amazing. It was like air-conditioned, perfect temperature all the time and beautiful bed and everything was wonderful. And it was really emotionally dist distra distressing. It was actually the most difficult time in my life, emotionally or psychologically. And for a whole pile of reasons, but one was this, the sheer shock of being moved from one place to another. And you know, while that was an incredibly important time for me, and I then got close to some people who are you know best friends, um, that I kind of I kind of did experience firsthand what they say because there's always a part of us that says, well, that's not really true, right? If you win the lottery, I mean, oh, come on, it's going to be fantastic, <laughs> but uh, you you kind of are shocked because you realise you bring everything with you, and even though you've got a more beautiful home and a better shower and a nicer bed, um, it doesn't fill the lack. So there's the fantasy, which you shouldn't necessarily have fulfilled, and there is some possibility um, that you can, you know, attain the fantasy, right? And oh, the, so the first figure that I was mentioning of the not all is the one who wins the lottery or the one who's able to buy themselves out of difficulty. And then the second is uh, the figure of the person who builds a, a house in the wilderness and basically checks out of the frenetic pursuit of more products and, and work and all of that and sits and reads a good book and looks at the, the mountains or looks out on the ocean and kind of like uh, finds a certain fulfillment that way. And that can be the not all, the person who has it by kind of checking out of the system. So those are, two, um, those are two kind of like figures that, that we might have within the contemporary world of the not all. In contrast to that, 
there is what uh, Lacan calls the normal. And the normal um, is a different type of desire, a way to desire. And in the normal, there is no exception to the law. Right? We are all under the law. We all have obstacles, things that get in the way of our pleasure and of what we want. And there is no exception whatsoever. Except um, there is a part of us all that does not fit within uh, the system. There is a part of us that is, um, you, know, you say it like this, no one can escape from the law, but you can find escape within the law. There is a type of embracing the castration, embracing the law, um, uh, but in a way that actually gives you a type of pleasure or a type of enjoyment in the very loss. And of course, that connects with what we looked at last week uh, whenever I talked about uh, the object of desire and the object cause of desire and the pleasure principle and the reality principle and how these interact not simply to stop us from getting what we want, but also to help us get some sort of pleasure in the not getting what you want. And so the example I used of that was Marlon Brando in the film The Wild One, where he's part of the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. And the, the, this woman says, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what do you got? And so that idea of the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club being this group that are in the world but not of it. They are within, but they are rebel they're rebelling, but in the rebellion and in the not being at one with the world, they have a type of um, you could call it a type of productive maladaptation, right? They're productively maladapted to the world where they get enjoyment out of their not fitting in. And so the non-all does not have some sort of fantasy of a non-castrated other right? That fantasy is traversed, right? And uh, we enter into something else. So the non-all is similar to the non-member, right? Whenever I talk about non-membership, I'm kind of referencing something about this non-all. To be a non-member, because by the way, a non-member is positivizing a negative, right? You're not a member and you're not not a member. You are a non-member, just like a zombie, right? You're not, a zombie is not alive and it's not dead, it's undead, it's something else. So to be a non-member is to be part of a community in which you realize that that community, um, uh, there, is no, there is no one, um, it's a community of fracture, let's call it that, a community of fissure, where you're, like, because usually what communities do is communities revolve around the not all. We are all joined together by shared beliefs. We share some, something in common and we have shared obstacles, right? Some shared thing that we think if we got rid of that, then everything would be great. So the typical community is a community of the not all. Uh, a community of the non-all is where you're part of something, but you realize that that cannot satisfy you, make you whole and complete. And in fact, it reminds you of that. And it, it traverses the fantasy. So it, 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 it uh, critiques the fantasy that we can get to the non-all, right? That we can uh, get beyond the law, that we can get beyond this castration, that we can be whole and complete. So you're kind of a member of a group that um, undermines itself as a group. Now, 
uh, what I want to do is connect this with something that Paul talks about um, when he talks about the community of the neither nor. Um, so for Paul, he talks about this notion that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And uh, this is a fascinating insight. Uh, there's a number of philosophers who are outside of Christianity entirely, but who find within this verse and within some of Paul a very radical message. And uh, one of the first things to notice about this uh, framework that Paul's giving us is that, right, these groups, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, are like tribal identities. They're sociological groups. If you had a sociologist going into the world and they, you know, broke down different groups and then how those groups think, how those groups act, right? These are the different groups of Paul's time. And you could broadly say that Jew Gentile is the religious kind of groups, uh, slave free are the political groups, and male female are the biological groups. Um, now, the natural cut. Uh, is the cut between different groups and with different religions as well, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, whatever. But Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, right? The natural cuts are the cuts that are between those, that separate those from each other and that dictate how those groups interact. And jumping from one group to another is difficult, but not impossible, right? So a Gentile can become a Jew. Um, I'm guessing that a Jew can become a Gentile. I'm actually not sure about that in terms of whether you can renounce your Judaism, but I'm guessing there's some way to do that. Uh, someone who is a slave can occasionally become free. Uh, and then also sometimes politically there can be a time where many people who are slaves become free. And also people who are free can become slaves. And people who identify as male can identify as female and vice versa. So each of these groups are defining of who we are but you can to some extent jump between them and you could call that jumping between a conversion right to convert from one to the other now paul isn't talking about that at all paul is talking about a different type of cut not a cut that separates one family or one group from another but a cut that separates groups from within that separates groups from themselves. Now this connects with that verse in the Bible where Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? To cut not one family from another, but to cut families from within, to make, uh, you know, to cut uh, daughter from mother, uh, father from son, right? Now this is a difficult verse to interpret initially, but this actually connects very deeply with what Paul's talking about. Because what Jesus is saying there is, Again, I'm not doing the natural cut, which is one family is different from another, one religion is different from another, uh, one identitarian group is different from another. What is happening is the cut is going right across. So for Paul, to identify with Christ didn't mean that you were no longer a Jew or no longer Gentile, no longer free or slave or male or female, but rather that you uh, no longer held on to that identity in the same way, right? So it wasn't that he was outlining six different groups and then coming along and saying, now we've got a seventh one 
And you need to jump from one of those six to the seventh one. And the seventh one is identifying with Christ. Because Christ was the one who gave up identity, right? So Christ was crucified, which means cursed of God. So he was outside of the religious community. Um, he was crucified as a non-citizen. You're outside of the city, no longer seen as protected by the political structure. So you weren't even within the slave or free model. And uh, you were stripped of your all of your dignity, all of your humanity, brought down to kind of like a bare kind of human subject. Right. So you were not an identity. To identify with Christ is to identify with the loss of identity. Which means now you can be a Jew and identify with Christ or Gentile or male or female or a slave or free or anything, right? Everyone has access to that. Everyone is able to identify with the one who loses identity. Which means we identify with the outsider, right? By identifying with Christ, there's some dimension in which we are identifying not with the inside, but with something that is outside. Um, and this, by the way, is, is interesting when Paul defines Christ, Christians as the trash of the world, right? The trash is what you put outside, right? So it's literally you're identifying as the absolute outsider, just as, of course, Christ is cursed of God, um, and placed outside the city. We are, when we identify with Christ, identifying with the outside. So if you have two political positions, for example, one that says, um, you know, we live in a type of meritocracy where some people get to the table, some people get in, some people get the stuff of society and some people don't, right? And then you have others who say, well, everybody should get to the table. Everybody should be inside. This third position is saying that all of us should identify with the outside, right? That there's something wrong with the table itself. Some people say, right, some of us get to the table. Others say we all should get to the table or at least representation at the table. This position is where we need to overturn the table, right? There's something about the outside. And uh, this does connect with existentialism where uh, Jean-Paul Sartre talks about how if we identify with our job, for example, and we see ourselves wholly um, in relation to what we do, we are being inauthentic because there is something about being human that means that we are not what we are. Rocks are rocks and dogs are dogs, but to be human is to be always changing and to be becoming human and to be able to be inhuman. So there's something about being human that is always outside our identities, that can never be fully reduced to our identities without us falling into bad faith. So that's what he calls bad faith, when we fully identify ourselves with our community and don't see ourselves as, as kind of like a, a surplus, always kind of more and less than and other than the, or the jobs that we do, for example. So for Paul, now, it's interesting, now you can be a Jew who is not Jew, Gentile who is not a Gentile, right? Slave who's not slave, a free who's not free. And what does that mean? Well, it partly means that, right, you're still part of a community. When you identify with Christ for Paul, you're not taken out of your community, but rather you now engage with your community differently. And I would say it's the move from the not all to the non-all. 
So what happens is you have people within your, say you're an evangelical Christian and you have people who are in your community and you all believe basically, you know, pretty much the same thing. You believe some different stuff, but you've got like core things that you all believe. And yet, say you find yourself more, have more affinity with a person down the road who doesn't believe any of the same stuff that you believe. They have a different religion or a different way of looking at the world. And so at the level of the what, what you believe, you serve completely different. But at the level of how you believe it, there's a similarity. Whereas the people that you agree with entirely at the level of what, you find that at the level of how there is this big difference. So strangely, if you look at what you believe in relation to the other people in your community, you go like, well, we believe pretty much the same stuff, but there's a real difference. And yet there's somebody else who believes something completely different to me, but I feel much more of an affinity with them because it's at the level of the how. Now, an example of this is I was in a debate years ago and it was about, um, there was a, it was a discussion about ecumenism and different religions. And this guy said, you know, my religion is right for me and your religion is right for you. And what I was trying to say in relation to this Pauline notion is no, no, no. My religion is wrong for me and your religion is wrong for you, right? And that's kind of the relationship we should take to our communities is in the community of the not all, right? You have a community, you all feel like there's certain lack, there's certain things that aren't working out, there's certain struggles and obstacles you have, but you have a fantasy that you can overcome that in this world or in the next world. And you have certain technologies or practices that, that, that help you to you know, achieve that fantasy, right? Um, but then you have someone else in the same community who has those beliefs and those practices, but they don't see them as going to like fix everything and close the gap and give us certainty and satisfaction. They see these things as the ways in which they navigate the world, the icons that they use um, in order to um, encounter depth within their lives. And so they're not caught up with the fantasy that their system is right and their system can give complete closure, but rather they're going, no, the system doesn't work. And that's actually part of the beauty of it, right? So there is this sense in which um, you can embrace the ongoing uh, kind of a failure of your community as part of a success. Now, and I'll come to this a bit later on again, um, but one way that looks is you go, my religion is wrong for me, but as I engage in its critique, and as I try to critique it myself and allow others to critique me, it becomes richer, it transforms, it changes, and it's never going to get to the place of the not all, right? It's always going to be uh, what Paul Tillich would call a broken myth. It's always going to have failures and fissures and cracks. But being part of that passionate discourse and exploration and movement is what it means to be faithful to the tradition. So one way then of interpreting this Pauline cut of the neither nor is not that you are out driven outside of your community to another community. That's fine. You can. You can move from one religion to another. And we do make those types of conversions. 
But the conversion that Paul is talking about is a much more radical conversion. And it's a weird conversion because it doesn't mean you convert from one worldview to another. It means that you convert how you relate to the worldview that you have. And when you convert relative to the worldview that you have, you enter the space of the non-member. You're kind of the member of the group, and yet you also have a critical kind of distance to it. Um, so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. We started with the not all and non all and looking at that in relation to Paul and uh, um, the type of community that he envisions. Now, I also want to connect this with the critique of ideology. And so what I want to do is very briefly define what ideology is in brief and then try to show how pyrotheology is attempting to get people to be in a critical relationship with the ideologies that, that surround them and that uh, we're immersed in, right? Like a fish is immersed in water. Uh, and again, the video by Todd McGowan, um, I really recommend you watch that. So I'm just going to do a, a very brief summary. Um, the term ideology is first systematically um, uh, developed by Marx and Engels. And uh, what they say ideology is, is simply an ideology is the idea that thoughts and reason and consciousness uh, dictate our embeddedness in the world, right? The world is understood and changed and developed through thinking, right? And Marx says in the German ideology that it's the other way around that actually our consciousness is shaped by our material reality, right? Our interaction with the world, uh, resources, uh, um, scarcity, all of these issues, but material issues affect how we see the world, our experience of the world. And so for Marx, ideology covers that over. It kind of says that one is that ideas are, are where all of the changes happen, and then what occurs is basically uh, the, the powerful, the people who society's working for, they try to eternalize the current situation and try to say this is the reasonable situation, this is the way it should be, this is the way it must be, uh, rather than Marx who says that no, uh, our thinking is influenced and developed by our material conflicts and our relationships and what we produce, how we produce, how we interact with each other. And for Marx, uh, ideology type tries to cover that over because, because when you see that for what it is, you see that things are always changing, always developing. There's new oppressions and there's violence and those things have to be resolved and those can change who's in power, right? They cause transformations in society. And some people do want transformations in society because they won't benefit from them. So that's, a, that's where it starts. Simply ideology is anyone who's basically using thoughts to kind of go like ideas, reason, consciousness, dictates uh, transformation rather than a materialist view, which is how we interact with the world affects our consciousness and how we uh, see everything. Um, now, by the way, with that, um, as that notion develops, as I say, we get to the point where we can see the educational system, the political system, the religious system as often trying to offer um, rational justification 
for the injustices that we experience in the world. So that's the first kind of like, you know, ideology critique is trying to show how these, these rational ideas say, this is just the way it is, right? Like that, that all, there's a famous hymn, all things uh, bright and beautiful. And it has a verse that says, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Now that line's been taken out, I think, but uh, it was in the original. That's the notion, right? Listen, the way things are, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, that, that's because of God, right? God has ordained that. Uh, that's natural law. That's the way things should be, right? Uh, and we have to accept that, right? It's not simply because of contingent material factors that got some people in power and some people powerless, right? Um, it's actually because this has been rationally ordered. Uh, and then, of course, the ideology critique is to show that that's covering over the contingency of situations and wars and conflicts and, and just luck, right, that put some people in power and, and kept some people downtrodden. So ideology critique is trying to show up how these kind of like justifications are uh, not kind of um, sent down from heaven, right? We can critique them. Then a big development in ideology in the understanding of ideology occurred after Freud because Freud discovers the unconscious. And with this, this systematic discovery, uh, we end up uh, getting an answer to the question of, well, why does education not work? Because if right, ideology is simply covering over the contingent realities of oppression by making them seem eternal, the way things should be, right? then education should free us from ideology, right? If you educate people and people see through that, um, then you'll think that we'll see less oppression and we'll kind of create uh, societies that are less violent, right? But that doesn't happen. And in fact, you could say the movement from feudalism to capitalism from Marx's perspective is the movement in which in feudalism, ideology is is used, right? The, the educational system, uh, the religious system, the political system are telling people day in and day out that if you're a peasant, that's because of natural law. That's because God ordained it. That's because this is the way things should be. But within capitalism, we're not so caught up in that, right? You know, suddenly start to go like, well, we're, we're all equal under the law. And yet we see oppression continuing to exist. And so the, the question is, well, why does that happen? Why is education so uh, impotent to cause change? It can cause some change. It definitely has some effect, but it wasn't the effect that people imagined it would. Well, the notion of the unconscious helps us um, because with the unconscious, we realize that we are not um, enslaved by simply conscious ideas, but by unconscious motivations. And at a very deep level, uh, we are interpolated into the world. And this is where the theorist um, uh, Althusser is very, very important. Because he takes some psychoanalytic ideas and he applies them to an understanding of ideology. And so just as a child becomes to know themselves through the family, right? So they start to identify themselves as a self through 
what's being shared by their parents and their siblings, right? They, they kind of interpolate the values of the family into themselves. And they think that they recognize themselves in those values. But in another way, more fundamentally, they misrecognize themselves. It's not that they are discovering themselves, they are being formed, right? Those ideas are being, we're being sewn into them, we're being woven into this family ideology, this, this way of seeing the world and being in the world. So much so that it's not your thinking, it's, it's embedded in your acting. It's, so it's very, very hard to free yourself from. And Althusser says that that's kind of the same as society, is that we are not educated to think a certain way or to view ourselves in a certain way. We are, our very identity is constructed through misrecognition, right? From before we can think freely for ourselves, before we can reflect on anything, we are immersed in ideology, just like we're immersed in language. So I have a nephew at the moment who is starting to learn to speak. And you can see that he is not learning language like we would learn language. He is immersed in language. He is kind of uh, not speaking language, but language is speaking through him, right? So he, he is learning how to speak, but he's immersed in it. So there's a whole... Um, uh, you can't quite say, like whenever I go to learn a language and I say, right, this word for house means this word in German, right? And I, I, I kind of make that connection. It's something much deeper. You are, you are, like I said, a ship sunken in the depths of the ocean whenever, lang where language is all around you and then going inside of you and you're speaking it out and gradually you get control over it. And that's what ideology is like. Uh, we are... Uh, so in it that simply learning about looking at the world differently doesn't necessarily have that much effect. So what ideology critique becomes for someone like Althusser might be the sense in which we come to realize that. We come to see that we are immersed in a way of seeing the world that is damaging sometimes to us, is damaging sometimes to other people. and. The way out of it is partly, I mean, I guess everyone experiences to some extent is like if you have a, if you say have a certain view of the economy and then you lose your job and then you lose your house and you lose your family. Um, so suddenly you don't identify with the person that you used to be, not because of your strength or character. And they just basically, you've been thrown into a different place. Like everything fell apart. So maybe when you, you're, you had your job and everything was going well, you believed that, well, everyone can achieve, you know, everyone can do it if they put their minds to it. And, you know, you might have all of these thoughts about the world, but then you're thrown into some completely different subjective position. And you start to see how that was a kind of like a, you were immersed in an ideology, right? Um, and even with Icon, I remember like people who were religious who would come to Icon, often it was, they had a view of the world in which you, you know, good things happen to good people. If you're honest, if you work hard, um, if you're faithful, life will be good. But then they, they, they try to be faithful and strong and good and maybe uh, they lost their partner or they lost a child or they lost their job, something fell apart. And in that falling apart, they momentarily realized that they were in an ideology 
that just wasn't working for them anymore. It's, it's almost like if you're watching a movie on an old TV set and you're totally taken up by it, but then the screen uh, oscillates, there's like a, like a VHS tape, there's all of the static, and the static momentarily takes you out of the image. You're momentarily kind of shocked out, out, out of the immersion into the experience. So that's ideology critique, is finding yourself not identifying with the subject that you were sewn into. Um, okay, uh, and then just very briefly, that idea develops into the work of Shizek. Shizek's a very, very important figure in terms of ideology. And um, his work is very complicated. Uh, we have a, I have a course actually where we looked at his book, The Sublime Object of Ideology, this very subject. But in brief, then Shizek adds to this by saying that there's actually um, an element within subjectivity, within us, that never fits with, this, with the symbolic world that we're in. There's a, there's a dimension of us that never fits in. So ideology is always trying to domesticate you. It's always trying to get you to fit in a certain box, to see yourself in a certain way, to identify with a certain group of people, with a certain community, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always trying to domesticate you. But there's, there's a part of you that can never be domesticated. And this is called the real. There's a part of you that, that, that no matter how much you try to reduce yourself to some sort of object, to some sort of group, um, you can't quite do it. And ideology is always trying to cover over that, that tension because that tension is what can create change in a society. The, the bit that doesn't fit, the bit that kind of sticks out is actually where if you lean into it, you can actually start to make changes in your life and in your world. So ideology tries to cover over that, tries to hide it. Uh, but for Shizek, a lot of his work is about how do we uncover that real, uncover that uh, little bit of uh, dust in the spokes of the system, uh, because that's what's going to lead to the destruction of an oppressive system because systems different systems are oppressive in a different way but to maybe a system that is less oppressive and if and i don't know if i talked about this in this course but uh, i think i touched on it a little bit but this movement is in a sense you find the contradictions within a present system and the violences within a present system you bring them to the surface and you can move to a society that um uh uh, kind of like brings us to a, a deeper contradiction, but one that is um, that kind of solves the contradiction of the of the current system, and you kind of keep moving to the point at which you can embrace contradiction and you can create a more equitable society. So, the movement is not towards an, an, uh, a not all. The movement of society is not towards some paradise, right? That some priest can give us, right? The paradise is utopia. The priest is the non-divided other who can you know, give us paradise. This is not a movement for, this is a dissolution of paradise into struggle and a dissolution of priest into the community. So we're not moving towards this not all, but rather the movement is a continual joyful struggle for a better world, knowing that struggle is part of the very fabric of reality itself. And it's actually what brings meaning to society, right? So. Uh, so Shizek, he shows how bringing that, that contradiction to the surface can help us move forward. 
And then the final person I want to mention with ideology is Todd McGowan. Because Todd McGowan then develops what Shizek is doing. And he says that in a very clear way. He says, ideology is always attempting to avoid that, the contradiction within a given society and make it look like an opposition. An opposition is someone is in the way of us getting the perfection. Right? There's a destabilization in the world. Someone's destabilizing it. Someone is like a virus that has to be got rid of in order for us to get to the place of the not all, uh, the, the one who is not uh, divided. And Todd McGowan argues in his book, uh, Wanting, Enjoying What You Don't Have, which is a great book, he argues that there is a, a way of basically enjoying what you don't have um, of um, of embracing the contradiction and not always trying to overcome it, and that actually it's the, the attempt to overcome it that creates the problems, including like scapegoating and that kind of thing. And it's somehow embracing the contradiction um, and living within that is 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 what ideology critique is. And the reason why this is connected with parotheology is the idea of the non-member is a person who we're in ideology we're in we're interpolated into it like uh, Althusser says we're we're part of systems and we're part of worldviews not just intellectually but in the very fabric of our being but there is a way not to escape from them but to escape within them to have a certain way of critically engaging with whatever ideology we're in of attempting to not reduce contradiction to opposition, but to try to find the contradictions in our individual lives and in our society, bring them to the surface, and um, not fall foul of this temptation to think that there is a way out of, of, of movement, right, of dialectics. So there's a lot there, right, I'm going to sum it up. Um, but that means the non-member, the, the paratheological community, is a community of the non-all. Um, it's a community that, that is not seeking paradise, but dissolves paradise. Paradise is found in the very renunciation of it and in the very struggle of life. And the priest, as the one who is kind of shows the royal road to paradise, um, is dissolved into the priesthood of all believers. So there is a type of paradise and the renunciation of paradise and there's a type of priest in the renunciation of the priest and that by the way that movement is the movement of paratheology we start with the priest and paradise and the system in which we looked at in the last part the liturgy takes on those projections of paradise and priest and then gradually dissolves them away into this experience of the non-all um, all right. Uh, I want to give a couple of examples of what this looks like within parotheology uh, and then um, see if you've got any questions. The, I think the, if you want to understand what this looks like in practice within parotheology, I think you have to look at the decentering practices. And the decentering practices to date are Atheism for Lent, the Omega Course, the Evangelism Project, and the Last Supper. These decentering practices are kind of designed to help you experience existentially uh, becoming a type of non-member. Because remember I said like it's not about just intellectually learning about how to 
kind of like distance yourself from a worldview. Um, one has to kind of like kind of experience it. So take for example the Omega course. And the Omega course is kind of a, a playful take on the Alpha course. The Alpha course is a very big evangelical course uh, that came from the UK where over 12 weeks uh, you take different themes and a group of people get together and they talk about the theme and the theme is a religious theme, something to do with maybe uh, is the Bible true, right? And everyone will be able to discuss that over food and drinks. And then at the end, there's a video uh, and they put the video on or, or a person will will read, will kind of go off a bit of a script uh, or make it their own. But at the end, the kind of the right answer is given, right? And uh, you over the 12 weeks, uh, people hear about Christianity as a system of belief and then at the end they can kind of accept it or not, right? Well, the Omega course does something similar in that it looks at similar themes. But, but what it does is instead of having the, the kind of the quote-unquote right answer at the end, uh, it simply looks at different ways in which one can think about the topic. So if it's about, say, the resurrection, uh, you might have a, a really honest, good conservative view, something like N.T. Wright. You might have a really good, interesting, kind of liberal kind of view, uh, maybe someone like, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, name escapes me. But maybe um, uh, there's a guy, Thomas uh, Sheenan, is it Sheenan? But, that, you know, or somebody like, uh, oh, I can't remember, there's, What's his name? I met him. He was a big smoker. Anyway, I can't remember, but some kind of kind of liberal position, uh, and then a position kind of from outside of the religious tradition. And you would hear and you'd talk about it, and then you would talk a little bit about your personal views on it. And at the end, kind of we went away, and then we can't come back the next week to discuss another topic. Now, the idea of the Amiga course is not that you end up with an answer, uh, taking a certain position but rather that you enjoy the conversation itself, that you are kind of like, without even realizing it, you're part of the community by the very fact that you critically engage with the community. So you're part of the Christian community uh, with the Omega course, because it's, it's theological issues, not because of where you land on the issue, but because you're passionately engaged in the conversation and you're getting something out of that conversation and you're contributing something to that conversation that this is a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years, thousands of years before you were born, and will be going on for thousands of years after you die. And what kind of like uh, brings you into that is precisely your critical stance towards it, right? You're a member precisely because you're not a member because you you have this, this distance to what you're immersed in. Um, and the idea is that, that it's like a piece of art that instead of going to a museum and forming communities around shared interpretations of the art, it's like, it's like creating a community around the shared love of the piece of art, realizing that it will speak to you in different ways at different times, and that you, know, you bring new things to the art and the art will speak in new ways because it has a type of a superabundance of meaning. It's not that the painting lacks meaning, it's the painting has so much meaning that it cannot be reduced to a non-antagonistic, simple, true interpretation. And so, in the same way, one is unified, say, around, uh, in the Omega course, around some Christian themes, because we find in those themes an abundance of meaning 
and uh, it's actually in being connected with that and that discussion that kind of brings us together. I think in the last part I mentioned the difference between a, a believe, behave, belong model where someone is told a certain view politically or religiously. So say religiously it's like, you know, Jesus died for your sins. If you become a Christian you can, uh, you know, get your sins forgiven and spend eternity with God. Then there's behave. If you believe that then you pray, right? You engage in a certain behavior and then belong. You enter into the community. And how that's different from the Jewish tradition, which is more like a family where you belong first, you're in the family, you behave in a certain way, you engage in the rituals, and then belief comes last. And at first it's probably the same as the parents and then diametrically opposed. And then somewhere in the middle, right? Where you agree and you disagree, but where you're unified in is being sat around the table, engaged in the same kind of conversations. So all of the decentering practices in different ways are doing exactly that. They're helping you move from the what of belief to the how of belief. Right, which I mentioned earlier, from what you believe being key to how you believe what you believe. Uh, so for example as well, um, the Last Supper, where 12 people invite a guest to talk about what they believe and why they believe it. And if we don't like what they say, it's their Last Supper, right? So they, the idea is we bring controversial figures, we listen to them, we engage, we have fun over a meal, we playfully ask you know, whether we were convinced or not. But over 12 of those, or 20 of those, um, one's just a fun night, but over lots of them, you begin to get decentered from your worldview, right? You're decentered from your own position. You start to move from the not all to the non all. You start to move from the what to the how. You don't even know what's happening. It's just happening in that constant engagement with this with otherness. And the same with the evangelism project, where you go to be evangelized by another religious community. Um, where the evangelism is not really, are you going to become a Scientologist or whatever, but when they look at you and they see you and they feed back what they see in your tradition and you see yourself through the other's eyes and you kind of like are decentered by that look. Um, and again, you start to, as you're encountering lots of different views and ideas over lots of evangelism project events, um, you begin to see that what's less important is what you believe, but, but rather it's something about how you believe it that is that's key. So the decentering practices are probably the best example in terms of parotheology of what is attempting to help people become a non-member. Um, okay, so, uh, oh yeah, oh, I was going to mention Kierkegaard as well in relation to this. Uh, Kierkegaard spent a lot of his time writing books uh, under pseudonyms. He very rarely wrote in his own name. Uh, later on he kind of did, but early on he would use different pseudonyms. And you never knew whether Kierkegaard was writing in his own voice, from his own perspective, or from the perspective of the character that was writing the book. And sometimes even once I think he published two books on the same day that had different views. Um, so he's always playing with, like, I could never become a Kierkegaardian in a traditional sense because I didn't know what Kierkegaard thought, right? I could never quite pin it down because what he was doing was getting me to think for myself, to become an individual, to critically engage. And for him, that was subjective truth. That was to experience the contradictions, to hold contradictions 
with passion and with courage to make decisions in the midst of unknowing. This is very, very key to Kierkegaard. And so even in terms of preaching, I think people should not know what the, the minister thinks in a paratheological community. Um, because in a way, what they're doing is getting you to think for yourself. So it's less about trying to communicate the right belief, but communicating a type of uh, uh, a moving goalpost that allows people to think critically for themselves and become comfortable with a type of unknowing and become comfortable with being part of a community in which we're not unified around a shared set of beliefs. There will be in any community shared beliefs and shared practices. That's, you can't get away from that and that's not bad, but it's, it's in the midst of it having a type of critical distance towards what you're immersed in. One of the things I loved about Icon, uh, my community, was, uh, uh, was how difficult it was to say who was a type of member. Uh, I remember somebody asked me about this and said, like, who would you consider the core people within Icon? And I thought of about 20 people. I said, well, there's a group of about 20 people who I would say are like, like you know, really the core of this community. And then I thought about it and I said, and you know, half of them hardly ever come. You know, they, they're, they're there very rarely. And I said, and another, th another like quarter of that, of them are like go very occasionally or have stopped coming altogether. Um, and then some of them have never been at all. And I kind of realized that the core group of Icon were the ones who either never darkened its door or went occasionally or who used to go. And I think it, the reason was because they were still core members. They kind of, they, a lot of their social group was around the people um, and a lot of uh, the conversations were about ICOM, but also their kind of critical stance towards it was kind of what made them a member. So it was precisely their non-membership that made them a member. And that's why we started the non-membership course, because we wanted to give them a card that would prove that they weren't a member if ever they were accused of being a member, right? So that's, that's kind of how I think it should start to look. Um, now, the, the thing about um, pyrotheology is it is an attempt to, to actively draw out this non-all experience. It's designed to actively bring you into that experience over time. So if you're listening to this and you're wanting to set up a type of pyrotheological community, one of the things to bear in mind is how you create non-members, people who are critical of pyrotheology itself, because pyrotheology can become its own not all. It can easily become its own way of finding salvation. And so one has to be critical towards it as well in order to remain faithful to it, the fidelity of betrayal. Okay, I think I can stop there. Maybe I'll just say, I'll just kind of like do the whole journey in, in one minute and see if you've got any questions. And the whole journey is a member of a community is generally you're a member of a tribe and that tribe has the answer. And our experience of lack is provisional, right? We think, ah, there is, there is a way to escape that lack. And this community offers the way to do that in some form and capacity. And fantasy is the fantasy, obviously the thinking of overcoming that, becoming the not all. And there's the promise, the technology that will help you do that, prayer, whatever, right? Working hard, making money. Within the non-all, it's a community, 
in which you go, everybody is divided. There is no one who is accepted, exempted from that. Um, but there is a way through the very acceptance of that lack to escape it, to escape its negative power and to find a type of salvation from salvation, a type of conversion from conversion. That is non-membership. All right. Uh, see, hey, Kate. Uh, Kate says, is this difference in how we believe things similar to how Bonhoeffer said he found it easier to talk about God using religious language with atheists rather than Christians? Absolutely. I was thinking about that very thing uh, when I was saying it, actually. So Bonhoeffer, uh, for the rest of you, in his, in his later writings when he was in prison, he said that he found it easier to talk to people who were not religious at all about religious subjects. And he says, oh, and don't get me wrong, this is not evangelism. And he says, it's also not me kind of like, you know, talking in non-religious terms. So I, I can talk in really religious terms. I can talk like freely about, what, about all of those things in a non-embarrassed way. Whereas I feel incredibly embarrassed talking about that with some people within my religious community. And this is, I think this is exactly what he's talking about. Is he saying because He's, he's talking to other people who um, he can, it's not about the what of belief, it's about the how of belief. And he finds that these, what he calls religionless themes in religion, can speak to people who are not religious at all, just as what they're saying can speak to him. And you can have this really interesting and deep conversation of true um, connection. Uh, whereas people who believe all the same things as him, um, and could tick all the same boxes. There's just this sense of being embarrassed. I had the experience whenever I was part of a church when I was very, when I was 17, and when I finally left it, from 17 to 22, really. And uh, I, I remember thinking, like, oh, I I believe pretty much everything my pastor believes. He just believes it, right? And I kind of ran, oh, that's the difference. Why am I not comfortable here? Because like I do believe all of this, because like, at that time I still was very taken by even that form of language. I do believe this. This is this is great and still think there's a lot to it. But but it was an icon that was opening something up and not something that to, to hold on to in that kind of tribalized kind of way. So yeah, Kate, I think that that notion of Bonhoeffer, uh, that this is my way of interpreting exactly what he's saying in letters and papers. And Optimal Team Solutions. That sounds like I need you. Uh, uh, he says, often universities are seen as engaging in dialogue about diverse views. How is paratheology and the Omega course different than that? Yeah, um, okay, so there is a difference in that, I would say, so universities are incredibly, like, vitally important. Like those are some of the places less so now sometimes, but where diverse views are talked about and you engage in, in, in discussion and debate. But decentering practices are different because, well, one is universities are for people who want to be academics or who, want, who, who enjoy thinking in, in, in abstract terms, which is only a small number of people. And, you know, that's not even, I mean, it's a good thing, but it's not like any better than someone who wants to do trade, who wants to go in and learn how to do electricity and whatever, right? So if, if, if some, the decentering practices were like university, one, that would mean they're only for a very small number of people um, who value that type of thing. And um, 
it would be, and it would be kind of a bit elitist. Um, so there's partly that. And then secondly, it's also comes back to what I was saying about ideology critique, that it's not primarily intellectual. You know, you don't escape primarily by talking about it. You have to experience it in some way. You, you can, so we're liturgical creatures. The thing about decentering practices is some of them are a bit more intellectual than others, right? Um, and that's my fault, right? That's my fault. And like atheism for Lent uh, is, is, a, is a pretty academic-y kind of practice. I don't know if you've done it, but you know, if you've done it, you'll know that it demands a fair amount. And so not everybody's going to want to do that. So I'm guilty as charged of that. But the, thankfully in ICON, they didn't let me speak for more than five minutes because they would constantly remind me, like, ICON is not a place for, you know, a seminar, an hour-long seminar, right? Uh, it's, a, it, you know, it's about art, it's about this practice, about an experience, entering into the experience of something. And so the decentering practices are primarily, even the Omega course, it has the intellectual dimension, like, oh, here's three different ways of looking at it. But the second half of the night is very much you know, what did you used to think? What do you think now? What do you think you'll think in the future, right? Very much trying to get to the personal dimension. So the reason for that is because to actually ex under experience this and enter into the non-all or the non-membership, you have to not think in a certain way, but rather experience a certain decentering, And I'm excited about it. and some friends who are part of this community and I'm thinking of my friends Jean and Dee Dee who are doing a, a group called uh, a group uh, on the study using a zoom room in order to kind of look at this stuff in a very personal way because uh, Jean says to me he says Pete you you love the academic stuff but actually says my main interest is looking at how does this work in people's individual everyday lives and that's what I kind of want so even this course is highly, you know, it's an academic-y type course. This isn't parotheology. This is a description of it. Uh, Decentering practices are when we kind of, without even thinking about it, experience it. So I don't know if that, if that helps. Um, and I think, um, as I say, it's, it's partly my fault that some of the decentering practices even themselves sound a little bit academic. Um, but others aren't, you know. Um, uh, the advances in project and the Last Supper, you know, are hopefully, you know, don't fall too foul of that. Uh, Paprika says, uh, decentering in real life without, oh, right, decent, decentering in real life without others with you doing it can be lonely and leave one wishing for others uh, who could relate or talk to, or you could, who you could relate to or talk to. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So, sorry, decentering in real life without others with you uh, can be a lonely um, experience and can leave you wishing for others who you could relate to or talk to in real life about it. Like anyone outside a system physically standing alone, yes. The critical distance within your community in real life can feel lonely. 100%. And this, by the way, is why I believe in institution. Um, this is one of the core reasons, right? Um, I've always, I'll always give a different reason every time I say that, but this is one of the core reasons, is that to believe, I mean, my original tagline in my old website was to believe as human, to doubt divine. And uh, the reason why I like that little phrase 
We say like whenever you have beliefs and practices, you have a worldview and you're pretty solid on it, you're all right. You can even cope quite well with not having too many people around you. Um, but it's also easy to find communities of people with like-minded, you know, like-minded beliefs. But when you come to be decentered, that's when you really need community. Now, sadly, that's whenever you're asked to leave. The irony is the very point when you need it most is often the point in, say, a church where you're showing the door. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That's, that's actually when you should be showing the door in, right? For me, kind of paratheology kind of should work like this, that if someone comes with a very strict sense of this is what I know what it's about and I want to learn it, I want to learn the answers and I'm here because either I already understand paratheology or I want to understand it, um, we should probably keep the door closed and say, no, 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 come back in a few years. It's the very point where someone comes in and goes, I don't know if I think, I think you're, you're full of shit, right? I don't, I don't agree with you or maybe, or I don't know what you think, or I'm not even concerned about that. I'm just, I'm just in a place of questioning. I'm a place where my life is beginning to crumble. I'm going like, there, okay, come on in. That's, <laughs> that's when you should be in. So sadly, within confessional religious systems, generally, and not, not always, but often people experience needing loneliness and having to leave or having to stay quiet at the very point that they're, they're, de they're deconstructing. When, for me, paratheology, that's really where the door is opened. That's where you're going to come on in. And um, even with kind of setting up now online groups, what I'm hoping is some people who are going through that experience can start to kind of connect with these Zoom rooms that we're doing and, uh, you know, be less lonely in the experience because it takes true courage. It's truly painful. Um, uh, it's truly difficult and lonely going through this experience. You're absolutely right. Uh, the only good thing is that sometimes our defense mechanisms are so strong that if we're, if that they'll prevent us from doing it. And I think that's good because the alternative is sometimes suicide. If some, if someone goes through this level of deconstructing without community, um, they can often become so lonely that, you know, they end up wanting to take their own life or even taking their own life. And uh, um, so the last thing I ever want to do is kind of like push that on someone until they have community around them in order to, um, to be able to do that. That's, and, and I say about defense mechanisms because most of us, our bodies will, just in the same way, if you're almost going to fall off a cliff, maybe you know, your, your body will naturally pull you back. Um, whenever you're in an existential crisis, there's things that kick in, splitting, you know, that or whatever, or that, um, uh, there's a whole pile of actinoid, or there's a whole pile of defense mechanisms that can kick in, denial, that, that prevents you from experiencing that. And the last thing someone should do is try to take away the defense mechanism, because the defense mechanism is protecting you from something worse. What you need is a community, you need art, you need time, um, you need liturgy in order to gradually kind of bring you on this journey uh, that we're talking about. So yeah, totally hear you, 100%. And Kate says, last one then, um, do you see the power of community on Facebook, Discord, etc., as being more of a regular non-membership community? Or do you still see a role for the Amiga non-membership courses? Yeah, I, I, I totally see a role. I changed my own job 
when I came to America, although I did set up a community in, in uh, New York, but to mostly be talking about this stuff. But um, I do believe that these things should be real in whatever way, whether they're in terms of the non-membership course, Amiga group, whatever, decentering practices of various kinds or transformance art, uh, or, or in any of the infinite number of ways that we can set up communities that, that can help us um, experience the type of life we're talking about, uh, that cannot be done on Facebook can't be done on the discord community um i do think technology is opening up lots of possibilities and I, I find these um interactive like zoom rooms like full of potential and so i think that they can be uh an equally important part but uh but uh yeah i suppose i'm also talking about myself as like i'm rubbish at facebook uh, so it's not that's not good for me. But some people are great at Facebook and it really works for them. So that's another thing. It's like Facebook doesn't work for me. For some reason, I just, I go onto it occasionally and I'll talk to people occasionally, but I don't use it in my personal life and I really just use it in the professional capacity. But then I really like the Zoom rooms. I find them really useful to work with. So I guess I'd like to see physical groups. I'd like to see more online groups and... Uh, um, you know, uh, but see, I know you're doing coffee and concepts, and that seems to be going really well. You've only done one so far, or maybe two now. I think it's only one so far. Uh, the second one's tomorrow. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of group that I think is probably doing what what we're talking about. Um, coffee and concepts could literally become maybe the next decentering practice. Okay, I hope that made sense to you. Thanks so much for bearing with me on the course. Uh, we've got the last one next week where we're uh, probably that will be more of an overview and then we'll do a Zoom room uh, in order to kind of like uh, just uh, talk about various things that have come up over this course. So have a great day. Bye-bye.